Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. We're delighted today to be joined again by a close friend and colleague, Len Rubenstein. Welcome, Len. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Steve, for having me. Len is the professor of practice at the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins University. He is the author of the 2021 volume, Perilous Medicine, The Struggle to Protect Healthcare from the Violence of War, which we had the good fortune to spotlight that book in a book event here when it appeared here at CSIS. And he's the chair of the Safeguarding Health in Conflict Coalition, which has done remarkable work over the recent years in documenting the cases of deliberate targeted violence against the medical sector in violent conflicts. Len was in Ukraine, this is the purpose of this podcast, on a mission organized by Zahir Salul of MedGlobal. September 18th through 24th was in Ukraine. We wanted to have this conversation in order to hear from Len firsthand what he observed, both about the health sector and the status of the health sector, the status of the population in Ukraine, but the overall bigger picture too. So why don't we start, Len, with just your overall big impressions, and then we can dig into some of the more specific issues. But thank you for being with us. I was uh, in Kyiv, except for a visit to Bucha and surrounding towns, which had been attacked at the beginning of the war. The impression of Kyiv is really stunning because this incredible appearance of normality with people going to work and uh, traffic and cafes and restaurants all busy, and yet underneath uh, there is this incredible grief, anxiety, tension, stress from the regular uh, missile and drone attacks, despite the Patriot missiles protecting Kyiv. And so there's this contradiction. Uh, I think it was expressed really well. We had a visit to a wonderful maternity hospital, beautiful hospital, very well staffed, very qualified people. They haven't lost a single woman since the war to maternal death. And after three weeks of the war, they stopped operating in the basement. But whenever there's an alert saying a missile or a drone is coming in, they have to move everybody to the basement. And that's what life is like in Kiev now, that people are trying to live normally, but there's this underlying uh, fear, anxiety, and stress. Many people have commented on the accumulating, rising burdens that this war imposes upon Ukrainians in Ukrainian society. There's a couple of different ways that that's expressed. One is that the rehabilitation requirements of the population, particularly war-wounded soldiers, but beyond that, lots of citizens that have been harmed physically, that that requirement, the demand far exceeds capacity. 
Another issue that relates to this is mental health disorders. There are some estimates, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on what those estimates are, that a fairly significant portion of the population is suffering from moderate to severe forms of mental health disorders, typically depression, and that vastly exceeds capacities. Can you say a bit about those? Almost everybody we spoke to raised both issues. Uh, Parliamentarians talked about the absence of real rehabilitation services for veterans from traumatic injuries. The deputy minister of health we mentioned said they're trying to establish new rehabilitation centers. They got six going so far, but it's nowhere near the need. And they even have trouble with evacuation of war wounded, which exacerbates the injuries because they're not quickly treated. Say a bit more about that in terms of the evacuation from the battle line. As the litters are carried off the battlefield, there's difficulties with evacuation to the care facilities? Just to give you an idea, it was unusual for a high official in the Ministry of Health to say, we need more armored vehicles to evacuate the wounded. And they also have lost equipment. And on top of that, the Russians are imprisoning more than 500 military medics, physicians, nurses, emergency responders, which is completely illegal under the Geneva Conventions. So it's it's a stunning problem. And it's hard to get a handle on, on the data because the ministries will not release it. And then it's mental health issues, almost everybody we talked to said there's a mental health crisis. And the examples are endless. Even the day-to-day issues of having to be prepared to run out of your house when there's an alert. And the fact that so many people have lost so many of their friends and loved ones, and the anxiety about future loss for all the people at the front or in towns near the front is just overwhelming. And there certainly aren't the resources to deal with it. They're trying, but they're, they admit that they're nowhere near capacity and won't be for a long time. Did you hear mention of the the gap in ability to locate prosthesis for those who suffered loss of limbs in Kiev. Well, I'm hearing some pretty big numbers in terms of the population of soldiers in particular. We actually had a lot of discussion because two surgeons were with us, including a retired military surgeon in, in the U.S. Army who was an expert on prosthesis. And it's not just the physical prosthesis, but the training of how to deal with them. And these prosthesis need to be changed every few years, three to five years, you need a new one. And they're not in a position to meet that need. And so that is another overwhelming need. And that's part of the whole health system. On the one hand, the health system is doing remarkable work in functioning and going through reforms for primary care system, reopening primary care centers and hospitals that have been damaged in the Mm -hmm. thousand plus attacks on healthcare. But on the other hand, these needs like prosthesis is just an example of uh, how uh, serious uh, the needs are and how inadequate their resources are to meet them. So we're reaching a point where the Ukrainian society is suffering from very high incidence of mental health disorders that where the therapy, the trained, skilled workforce is not there, the ability to find therapy, where there's a large population estimated at 20,000 now of war-wounded soldiers who need prosthesis, who can't find a place to go to be fitted out and trained in the use of this, and where those who need rehabilitation, reconstructive surgery and the like are also overwhelming the system. How are these issues coming into focus and what should be done, do you think? 
Well, I don't want to convey only a grim picture. For example, we met with the um, director of the uh, Kiev Health Department. Yeah. They've lost a lot of staff. They started with 80 in the war, before the war. They went down to 10, but many people have come back. They're up to 50 now. They're still not properly staffed. But they've started new services like eye reconstruction surgery, which they never had before. It's very helpful yes. for people with eye injuries. So they're committed and they're functioning outside the areas in, in direct conflict, even those under occasional missile attack are functioning and they are building and they're trying to expand access. So we have this situation where war-related injuries and war-related mental health effects are overwhelming at the same time they're carrying on. And, you know, Amina Zaparova, who is a deputy minister of foreign affairs, said our motto is uh, the way to predict the future is to live it. We just carry on. But, she said, this is not normal. <laughs> That's the problem, that the needs are overwhelming, even as though they're very strong in keeping their health system going. What are people thinking about the winter that's approaching and the war itself, the course of the war? How have expectations around the war? We had a year ago, there were major breakthroughs on three different fronts that were massive achievements, massive gains, very swift for the Ukrainian military. The counteroffensive that started in June has been against an opponent where the biggest minefields now in the world that have been laid down along that 700-mile front. And it's a different, I mean, it's a grinding war with very, very limited gains on the ground. You know, the thousands of meters of advance a year ago, now it's under 100 meters a day. What are people saying about the war? I think two things. They understand understand it. Uh, actually, uh, Minister Zaporova told us there are 200,000 square kilometers of mined land in Ukraine. And that not only hurts the military offensive, but has implications for the future for farming and anything else about living in those parts of the country. They also are well aware of the military situation. But it was really stunning how there seemed to be such a unity on all fronts. There was no hesitation of their commitment to go to the end, that they are not willing to even talk about any kind of settlement or resolution. They feel like they are in this for their own self-preservation of their identity and their country. And in that sense, morale seems pretty good, that they they are committed. And it was really interesting. We met with the Council of Churches and other religious organizations, leaders from about 12 different denominations, and they were as committed to the war and used phrases like, we are um, warriors of light, <laughs> used that phrase, and other kind of military imagery in repeating what everybody else asked for, a U.S. military assistance. Even then, before the recent activities in Congress, they were worried. One of the officials said, we're worried about an Afghan scenario, meaning yes. a pullout. And that was before this past week. And so they're very worried. But the level of commitment, in spite of what they're dealing with day to day, is really uh, impressive. Say a bit more of how Ukrainians are focused on what's happening in Washington, because all of my conversations with people in Ukraine, it's like the first thing that is raised 
it's less about what they want to tell me about what they're experiencing. It's more like, what's going on? What, what did you hear in your conversations? In each meeting, we said, what can we do for you? And without exception, people said, continue military aid. That's what people want. And they follow the news as closely as if they lived in Washington. They know what's going on and they're concerned, but it hasn't affect their commitments, at least till now. And they're also very grateful. We met with uh, the dean of a medical school and um, it was actually of the university. Uh, and he brought his faculty from the medical school and some students. And one student said, you know, it's much better now uh, since you sent the Patriot missiles, we can have labs again. In the beginning, we really couldn't have labs because the missile attacks were so devastating. But now we, we can have those labs again. And that's, that's what people are like. They, they're desperate for more military support and worried about it, very much so, but continuing carrying on. Tell us a bit about what happens next following this mission. There were a number of other people on this mission. What do you do now? You're doing this podcast, which we're really grateful for. What more happens now that the, team, the group is back here in the United States? There are a few things I think are going to happen. People in the group were very motivated, especially clergy who are not used to talking about this with their congregations and in their larger communities to really start talking about it much more to bring the Ukrainian situation to the world, to the country, and convey what's going on. A second thing is I had a very good meeting with the chief uh, of the war crimes division of the prosecutor general's office, and we had an excellent discussion about ways of prosecuting the tax on health care, given the evidence that's available, and we expect to continue to work with him in a strategy group about that. A third thing is to try to draw attention to the the military medics who are illegally imprisoned in Russia because it's it's so devastating for them. And then there's the problem of the reportedly uh, 20,000 civilians imprisoned in Russia. So there's a lot to work on uh, and to try to find ways to reach people who might have some influence within Russia in some way, shape, or form to address these issues. So there's a lot to do as well as, of course, try to send the message that we got from the Ukrainians and the reality on the ground uh, in Ukraine to uh, policymakers here. You know, the um, one theme that I think comes out of your discussions is that the health system, while it's been besieged, while it had flaws before the war, before the war began, was embarked on a process of moving beyond the Soviet model into a more something that would be more modern and would be more acceptable as they seek accession into the European Union and the like, that the health sector has been pretty resilient in this period. I mean, they, in talking to different, different folks involved in the health sector, they may be 25 or 30% down in their, in their staffing or worse, but the delivery of services in many, many areas have come back pretty strong. Is that accurate? And how do you explain that? That was one of my surprises. Uh, after all the more than 1,000 attacks on hospitals, uh, no one talked about infrastructure problems. 
uh, because they repair the hospitals and they make do with what they have. And it has been amazingly resilient, although I don't often like to use the word resilient because it kind of lets off us off the hook, like everything is fine. <laughs> but when we met with the deputy minister of health, one of her top priorities was going forward with the health with the health reform, which includes shifting to a primary care model and making care and drugs more affordable. There's still a problem in many areas that drugs aren't affordable, especially in the East. But yes, it is moving forward. Of course, they're so limited because they don't have much authority in in conflict areas or particularly in occupied areas where there are huge problems. HIV prevalence is going up, for example. But where they can, they are continuing the reforms. And I met with the director of a health center, a primary care center in Hamsomel, which is outside Kiev near Bucha. And it was pockmarked with shells. And now they're serving 5,000 displaced people as well as their local population. And they're doing well. They're, they're functioning well. It's a beautiful health care center. But this is the other side of it. The doctor was basically tortured. She was subject to mock execution with, by asphyxiation and walking in a field where she expected to be shot. And her son was taken away with, for no reason, and he's been gone in prison for 18 months. But the center is functioning. And that's what's going on, that people who are there, and of course there are fewer of them because of people leaving, they are carrying on. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Len. I don't know if you want to close with any other thoughts around what gives you hope and confidence, hope and optimism in this situation. You've touched on several points already. If there's a hope, it's in their commitment, their extraordinary competence, and their shrewd use of uh, planning to address the problems they have. There's no underestimating the enormous, enormous challenges they face. But I think if they do get support, both for their health system and for prevailing in the war, they will survive quite well and they'll deal with the trauma, psychological as well as physical, that they have to. And they're even prepared for the new attacks on the grid in the winter. They're expecting that. But they're preparing for it, and it's hard to prepare. They expect that they'll be more intense than last year, but they're ready to face it, and that's why I so admire them. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit csis.org.